Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence. I'm your host, Mary Rudolph, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Gonzalez, the Chief Medical Information Officer at the Institute of Human Caring, and we are talking about advanced directives. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. Use the hashtag Future of Health for a chance to hear your question in our episode. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Gonzalez. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's start with a super easy one. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your role at the IHC? Yeah, so I uh, have been with the IHC, the Institute for Human Caring, for a little over five years now, and I now serve as the Chief Medical Information Officer. Uh, it's a really good fit for me because I, my background is, is that I'm a clinically a palliative care physician. Um, and before I was working as a clinician, I was a software engineer. And so I really like this sort of role that I have at the IHC of marrying both technology and highly compassionate care and trying to figure out how we really try to infuse our health system with sort of the principles of palliative care, both on the ground and from a technology space to really to make it easier to get really good care by, by humanizing the experience. So um, it's such a pleasure, honestly, to, to be here with you and to, to work at the IHC. My, my colleagues are so much fun to work with. So appreciate the chance. You do have some amazing coworkers, I will say, and we've been blessed to have many of them as guests on the show. So um, you know, before I jump into really the topic of advanced directives, talk to me a little bit, though, about your role. I don't feel like there's a lot of health systems that have people in your role or even really health systems that have an institute like the Human Caring Institute, but then let alone have your role. So is it pretty unique? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's very unique. This is honestly the job that um, if I was drawing on paper um, that I would have drawn out and, and figured out. And I, I didn't think it existed Um I'm really proud of the fact that I, where I work, Providence certainly has put together this amazing team to be able to think about how we incline a health system to recognize that that who we serve are what most people call patients. And, and we think of them at the Institute of Human Caring as, as people, as people with, you know, yes, of course, medical problems and, you know, hypertension and diabetes, and we're experts at caring for that. But also recognizing that what makes us unique as human beings is, is all of the complexity to us and all of the beautifulness and messiness of, of having emotions, of having psychological states, of having spiritual well-being needs. And trying to dedicate a group to being able to think about those things within healthcare feels really unique. And then on top of that, to be able to say, we are in the midst of an information age and a digital revolution and to try to be able to recognize that, that we must continue to pivot outside the traditional walls of healthcare to be able to bridge that divide in a digital space. That's something that most people aren't thinking about. And certainly I feel incredibly lucky to work for a health system that recognizes all of that. Well, I think it's interesting. You said, you know, many people call them patients and you call them people. I think you guys go one step further and really call them family. I've never met anybody in the clinical side of your organization that does not just treat people as though they're family. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Yeah, 
that, that resonates very deeply with me. And it's so important, you know, it's, it's not just the people that we serve, it's their families that we care for because we're all in the context of communities, right? I think that's exactly what you're saying, which is that we need to figure out how better to care for, for patients and families, people in their families, all everybody combined, because that gets us closer to where we wanna be, which is really health for a better world. Absolutely. I love it. Well, the topic today is advanced directives. And I think, you know, speaking of kind of where we are as a society, we don't often talk about dying and we certainly don't talk about how to prepare for end of life care, um, which really puts us, our families and our caregivers or our care providers in, in a difficult situation. So when we talk about the need to create an advanced medical directive, I guess we could we could start by backing up to what is it, but then I really want to dig into why it's so important and why a lot of people don't have it. Yeah, all really good questions. So let's start, I think you're right, from the place of what is an advanced directive. Um, to me, an advanced directive is a legally recognized form that really kind of lays out two different pieces. One is um, who could speak for you or speak on your behalf if you were unable to do so. And the second really is, is some guidance for that person, kind of what generically you believe or what you would want um, to do in case you were faced with the end of your life. And those two parts together, honestly, the naming is really bad, that the advanced directive is made up of that first part, which is who can speak for you. And we think of that as a durable power of attorney for healthcare. And then the what you would want part is traditionally referred to as a, as a living will. You know, those words are kind of complicated and hard to remember. So we just kind of group them all together as an advanced directive of who speaks for you and what generic advice you might give them for helping to make those decisions moving forward. Well, you, know, you said a, a lot of things there. You had a living will. And, and I know a lot of people hear these things and they sometimes they think, oh, there's a living will. There's a power of attorney. There's an advanced directive. There's a DNR. There's all these different things. How do you know what it is that you need? Yeah. Well, I think partly that's, you know, having a good conversation with your doctor about what, what you traditionally need. The advanced directive is really made up of two parts. Part one is that sort of durable power of attorney for healthcare, and part two is a living will. So really by failing on an advanced directive, you're doing many of the most important pieces. DNR orders, we only really think about for people when they um, are really seriously ill and sick and may or may, may have very clear guidance about what they do or don't want, particularly around CPR when they approach the end of their life. For most adults, that's not a conversation that we really get into very much because it's more theoretic in nature. And that's really what an advanced directive is. Um, you know, we call them advanced, not advanced with a D directives because they're made to be done in advance of you having illness. They're they're really made for everyday people, for healthy adults. And honestly, it's something that we encourage and think about and, and ask people to think about when they turn 18. And that may sound really revolutionary because truthfully for a long time in healthcare, people have kind of used these documents um, almost as a subtle clue that something's wrong with you, right? Like I don't um, talk about the advanced directive with you unless I'm worried about you, unless you're seriously ill. And so if I, as your doctor, hand you an advanced directive, automatic alarm bells go off, right? You start worrying like, oh, what does my doctor know about me that they don't want me to know? And really, I think it's about reframing this to recognize that 
you know, we never know what's going to come in our lives, and especially now more than ever. And so putting down what generic things you think about or how you think about these things in advance of illness is really important for everyone who's 18 and up. Oh, I think it's such an important time to have this conversation. We had um, a guest fairly recently who was one of the first COVID people within the Providence Health System in California, and he's in his 40s, very healthy, no underlying conditions, super fit, was on a ventilator, did not have one, right? Um, well, I shouldn't say that he may, maybe had one, but it hadn't been a conversation he and his family talked about, right? Um, so I think... COVID, if nothing else, told us, hey, life can hit you completely unexpected, right? So we should have these. And I think you mentioned too, at the age of 18, it's almost like we should make it like you can register to vote as long as you have an advanced directive. But I think I think people are afraid to talk about it because it means that I might die, right? Like it's like putting it out there, like people are afraid to talk about mental health because you, know, you, you don't wanna say suicide prevention because that'll make somebody think about it, which is so not true. But the same thing to be said here, talking about your plans for death doesn't mean you're going to die. So how do we get people to have more of a, a conversation about it or how do we make it more comfortable? Such a good question. I think about it as twofold. And part of it is our responsibility, honestly, as doctors, nurses, as healthcare providers to really be better at um, having these conversations and moving them so that we normalize them, right? Like, you know, this really is a healthy part of behaviors. It's it's part of good health maintenance, I think about it. Um, and, you know, healthcare maintenance in general isn't the most fun thing. Those of us that are over 50, I'm not yet, but I've heard colonoscopy is not the most pleasant experience to go through or think about, but it's something that we do. It's something that is a little challenging to do, but it's important for our health. And I think about advanced care planning or advanced directives. Advanced care planning is really just a conversation about filling out the advanced directive in the same way is that it's maybe not the most comfortable piece of the conversation to have, but it's also really important for us to dig into, to be able to understand. So for me, I think that part is on us to be able to say, you know, we used to talk about them only when you were seriously ill, and now we've realized they're important because we can't see the future. I think the other piece, Mary, that you're sort of touching on is that because of the subtle messaging that's come out, it's that's old and outdated, truthfully. It, it's it's hard for society. It's hard for, for human beings to talk about this, to think about it. And there is some fear out there for sure of, oh, if I talk about this or I bring this up, is it is it going to invite it into my life? And you know, that's certainly not my experience. And it's it's interesting to me because we spend a lot of time thinking about preparing for our emergencies in our lives. Um, those of those of your listeners that, you know, for instance, have kids, they, they probably have talked to their kids about what would happen if they had a fire in their home and prepared them and said, okay, this, this is where we're going to meet. And this is our emergency evacuation plan. And if we live on a second story of a roof, here's the ladder to, to get out. And it's not that we're inviting a fire into someone's home, right? Like no parent is wants that or is dreaming or thinking that by having that, there's going to be a fire. It's that we're preparing just in case. And to me, I think about an advanced directive very much the same way. It's not inviting necessarily or accepting death. It's the recognition that bad things happen, car accidents happen, and being able to have someone who can speak for us is really important. 
I just sort of harken back to something you said really quickly, which is, you know, they're really these these directives, these advanced directions are really helpful for care providers, but I actually think they're more helpful for families of people who are sick. Like I wonder what it's like to be a family member when you haven't had those conversations. And then a doctor, a nurse, a healthcare team says, have you ever had any of these conversations and how do we help think about this together? If the answer is I've never thought about it with my loved one who I can't talk to, that decisions, those things that they were talking about are much harder if you don't have a place to begin or some background of how they think about these things. Well, then it really becomes almost how do I feel about it? Maybe not how my grandmother would feel, but how I feel about it on my grandmother's behalf. And who's to say I'm more connected to how she would feel than any other cousin or daughter or son or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that you touched on, I think is really interesting is you were talking about people who have kids. Most of the time they have a plan too, for if something happens to us, who's going to take our children? Who's going to speak on their behalf? We have car insurance. We have home insurance. We have health insurance. Isn't this a little bit like pre-planning? Yeah. I want to call it an insurance policy, but it's, it's my way of saying, this is what I want to happen to me in case of an accident, which I have on my car in my home, right? I don't want an accident, but it could happen. Yeah. I think it's very much the same concept. And it's interesting to me that you know, we, we put this conversation in a different box. We don't think about it in that way. I mean, people even have life insurance, right? <laughs> to plan for the what when, when the end comes to make sure that their families are taken care of in this way. This is very much the similar type of gift. Uh, I've met with many families who um, haven't had these conversations. And it's really challenging when you sit down with maybe a daughter and a son um, and they both have really different ideas about what mom or you know mom may have wanted in these in these moments. You know, one may say, "Oh, she believed that that the amount of time that she lived, sort of a vitalist, right? The the amount of time is the most important." And others may say, "You know what? The quality matters more. What you're able to do, how you're able to communicate, how you're able to interact." And when your two children may disagree about what that looks like, and I've been in those conversations, it's really hard on children to be able to make those decisions for their parents. And so I think that any guidance that people can provide is really a gift to be able to unburden people. Should should a bad situation happen, should that emergency happen, you want to be able to prepare people to give them this gift of making the best decision possible. I think it's so important too when when you talk about what somebody wants is that it may change over time. I know my mom and I had a really good conversation about what are her, her wishes. And she said, well, you know, Mary, it depends. If I get hit by a car and I'm 55 or 65, it's different than if I'm 95 and I feel like I've lived more of my life. Or, you know, those questions about too, like, am I on a ventilator? Am I not on a ventilator? Do I have brain capacity or not have brain capacity? Am I going to be able to walk? Am I not going to be able to walk? All those things change. So I think that's one of the bigger concerns that people have when you talk about this advanced directive is if I do it once, is it going to be forever? So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that because I think that's a really important topic that people have questions. So we will be right back. Some nights I stay up cashing in my bad luck. Some nights I call it a draw. Some nights I wish that my lips could build a castle. Some nights I wish they'd just fall off. But I still wake up, I still see our dust. Oh Lord, I'm still not sure what I stand for. Oh, what do I stand for? What do 
are back on Future of Health, and we are talking with Dr. Gonzalez about advanced directives and how to prepare for end-of-life conversations. So before the break, we were talking about the fact that people may change how they would respond to what their plans are based on their age or their capacity. So when people come to you and say, I'm concerned about having an advanced directive because what if it changes over time? What do you say to them? Yeah. I I think the first thing that we recommend is to, to recognize that that we all do change our beliefs over time and our uh, sort of the way we think about things um, is different when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Like um, I imagine those of us could go back in time really about anything and ask your 20 year old self, like, you know, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? <laughs> and the answer that you get is probably maybe very different than what you may answer when you're in your 60s and wisdom from life comes in many different ways. So the beautiful thing about advanced directives is is that um, they are documents that essentially can be updated um, and they're pretty easy to, to update. Um, so let's say you fill out one and it's been 10 years and you're like, you know, it's time to readdress that. It's time to think about this again. My thoughts on and have changed or evolved around this because I, I saw someone I care about die and, and that changed my perception of things. All you simply have to do to update it is fill out a new advanced directive and it automatically by law invalidates the old one and the new one takes effect. And so it's one of the nice things, the way this law was written is that it, it doesn't require a lot to inactivate an old one. You just kind of fill out a new one, which makes it really easy to be able to update these things. We, encourage people to update them, you know, at least every decade, because certainly things change over time. But then when other big things happen, um, you know, maybe you you um, get married, or you get divorced, or you have a death in the family, and that reframes the experience, all of these things are, are sort of new experiences that add to your understanding of what's going on and how you think about end of life or care through the end of life. And so it's important to think about updating those. The other piece that I talk about with people in addition to updating them, Mary, is that what really matters is who you choose to be someone who speaks on your behalf. Because the truth is, is that even in between those times, right, we have moments where we're like, you know, I'm not sure that I fully, um, what I wrote down fully resonates with me. 
the reason that there are two parts down, right, and this is just the wisdom, but also the person that speaks for you is that person is speaking on your behalf. They're your advocate. And so having conversations over time and calling up your, your surrogate decision maker, the person that's going to speak on your behalf and saying, Mike, you know what? I, I know you're my person that is going to make these decisions. And I just have this experience. And honestly, it reframes a little bit about the way that I think about how I might want to be treated or cared for at the end of my life. Those conversations are really important because that person has the immediate ability to operationalize that, to be able to, to speak on your behalf. And so I really um, encourage people listening to think very strongly about who they would put down to talk with their voice. And I encourage you to think broadly about it, truthfully, because sometimes these conversations, you know, we, we often assume that it would be our spouse, let's say. Um, and, and this may be a hard thing for spouses to be able to make decisions about for one another. Not off, always, but sometimes it is. And so sometimes it may not be a spouse that needs to be able to make this decision. It may be a, a best friend or an adult child or somebody that's a little bit more removed that, that is able to be able to have these conversations a little bit more openly. And so to me, what really matters is keeping these forms updated, but then also just choosing the right person and keeping them up to date, having conversations over time about what really matters to you. I think what you just said is is amazing because I think a lot of people create this directive. Maybe they were going to have surgery or whatever it is that drove them to do it. Their doctor asked them to, and then they never touch it again. And I think a lot of people don't actually have the conversation with the person that they've named as the person have their voice, but let alone have updated conversations. So I know for me, we had a lot of conversations in our family after you and Dr. Bayak had kind of walked me through this a couple of years ago. And there were people in our family who were comfortable having the conversation and people who weren't. And there were people who were like, I don't want to make decisions for my mom. I'll be too emotional about it. So who can make decisions on behalf of my mom? Right. And so I think it's important to think through too, who's going to be the the best person to speak for you in now when you can have the conversation, but in a time of crisis when there, there are emotions involved, right? Yeah. So, so important. Um, and I, I think you're right that, that sometimes it happens um, that, you know, people take these documents, they fill them out. They're like, phew, I'm done with that. Like time to move on and not think about this and stick them in a safe somewhere where no one has access to it. Right. In, in case of emergency. Um, and the person you wrote down doesn't even know. I definitely had the experience of, you know, calling up a friend or a neighbor and saying, you know, Joe, Mike wrote you down as the person to make decisions. Um, and unfortunately, Mike was in a bad accident. And, and Joe says to me, wait, what? Mike did what? Like, I've had no conversations with him about this. How could I even begin to know what to tell you? And, and that, right, doesn't equip uh, the person to be able to speak with our voice and, and really ultimately um, having these conversations really changes it. Cause if you call Joe and Joe says, Oh, that's, that's really awful. And that is really sad. And, you know, Mike and I talked a little bit about this over the last few years and these, this is what really matters to him. That's, that's helpful for us to be able to know care professional to be able to, to know who Mike is and know what mattered to him, what he was worried about, what he was hoping for. That helps us to be able to provide him with the best care possible, no matter what happens. 
Well, I think we've definitely beaten a dead horse on the fact that it's a hard conversation to have. So I think it's hard for both family members to have it with aging parents specifically, but then for people to just have that conversation in general, right? Of, hey, this is what I want to happen. So you guys do this all the time. What what tips or advice would you have for families for how to start these conversations? Yeah. So I think stories are really powerful um, to be able to talk about what it's like to have witnessed, um, you know, most people have the experience of having had a grandparent die or to use these experiences to inform what's going on. But I also tend to think, honestly, most Americans are are planners. And so I, in particular, like using something called um, the Conversation Project Starter Kit. Um, It's a freely available tool that um, is really well, well done. Um, And it's sort of um, a checklist, as it were, to help people prepare to have these conversations with their loved ones. So it goes through things like even practical pieces of, you know, where do you envision having this conversation? Um, is it in a is it in a kitchen? Um, you know, is it over Thanksgiving dinner? Where's the right place where you can envision all of these things to sort of set the pieces in place to allow you to have the most success possible? You know, I think some important th- part of this is self-reflection, right? Taking a moment to think about it yourself and understand what matters, but then using documents like the Conversation Project Starter Kit to really tee things up so that when you finally get to the step of having this conversation and filling out one of the advanced directives that we have available on our site, that you're really prepared to make decisions about this. First of all, it's great advice, and, and I'm sure that we'll be able to share pe- with people where to get a lot of this information later too, but we know that people are having trouble having the conversation and and that makes perfect sense. But what if they're just having trouble talking about death in general? I think, you know, it's very taboo in, for some reason in in the United States, not in my culture. In my culture, we actually look forward to death because it means that we get to pass on and go back into the spirit world and the whole nine yards. But how do you just approach that? Let's talk about death specifically for those who are afraid to have that conversation. Well, know, that's a whole different. Yeah. That's a whole different topic. I get it. Yeah. No. No. It's okay. That's that's a. Um, I'm I'm glad we've gotten into the easy questions here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's such a challenging thing, um, and yet, the truth is, is that as human beings, I think, um, for many of us, death is is truly what gives this life meaning. Um, you know, I, I often think about what would happen if I could put a button in front of most people and, um, you know, you, you push it and you live forever. Um, I think most people's initial reaction and temptation is to, to push that button, right? And then the, the reality sets in of like, do I really want that? Do I really, am I really willing to say goodbye to all the friends and family that I have known in this lifetime and, you know, years and years to come? And I think most people probably end up saying, eh, that's, that's ultimately not what I want in life. I think the, the sort of time-limited nature of our existence as we know it um, really lends tremendous meaning Right. If I had a million years to be able to do things, the time that I have, the 80 or 100 years that I hopefully have on this planet are maybe less, <laughs> less important. Um, so it, for me, I think a lot about how death gives our lives a tremendous amount of meaning and this space and how we spend it. 
matters so much who we choose to spend it with. And so while it's hard to talk about, I, I tend um, to have conversations uh, with people about the fact that we don't necessarily have to spend a lot of time in the advanced care planning or advanced directive conversations solely thinking about what, what the end of life means but more about what life currently means. Because if I at least know what matters to you now, what things you enjoy, how you like to spend your time truthfully, that gives me a lot of information about what you may or may not be willing to go through. So for instance, if you um, are a triathlon star, right? And you're really independent and you could not even imagine like being able to, not run or talk or jump or do things that that truthfully are unbelievable to me. I am not the most physical person. So that stuff is like amazing to me, right? Those people tend to think very differently about what they might be willing to go through for the chance of gaining more time versus somebody who might be a literature professor um, that, you know, as long as they can read and um, learn that that that, that quality of life may be in, equally as important to them. And that's not to to put people into boxes, but I think as much planning as we do, it's impossible to fully plan for every eventuality. And so for me, I think about advanced directives, honestly, much more about what do you, what gives your life meaning now so that we can figure out later, if we're not able to achieve that, what does that mean for you? Well, we went very existential and I love it. (laughs) I absolutely love it, but I probably should rein us back into the practical. So that being said, let's say I have the conversation, I decide to fill out the advanced directive. What do I do? Where do I file it? Who do I give it to? What happens if I change states? Talk to me about the practicality. Yeah. So uh, I think hopefully everybody has decided to do one of these today. Um, So first things first is having a conversation with who would make decisions um, and talking with them about all of these things that we've been talking about. And then beyond that, I think that it's important to get it in writing on one of these forms in different states have different laws. Um, We've listed them all on our website about how to get it finalized. Usually it involves witnessing by a few different people, usually two um, or getting it notarized. And then this is really important. Most people, even when they've done these, what they do is they, as I mentioned, they, they kind of put it in a, in, a, in a box somewhere, in a safety deposit box or a file cabinet at home. And that, that works, but actually it's far more powerful to be able to make copies of this and to be able to give it to a few key people. Firstly, you want to give it to anybody whose name is written down on that form, particularly the people that would could speak for you, right? You want to be able to give it to your decision makers. So in case you're in a car accident, they have a copy with it of it so that they can act on it and use it on your behalf. The other thing that I really recommend nowadays is to, to scan it in and to put it in your email inbox and send it to your to other colleagues via email just so that in case you're out and about in the world and you're not able to access it again, that there's a digital repository of it. 
The third place I really recommend that you share it with is your healthcare team. And certainly we at Providence have the ability, if you have an assigned or primary care doctor within our system, that you can actually upload it through your MyChart portal directly to your doctors so that we have it and have a copy of it just in case something happens. It would be nice for us to be able to use, to be able to see, to be able to really understand what matters to you. Um, and then you mentioned something about changing states, which is important to recognize that I kind of alluded to this, that different states have different practices with regard to this. But truthfully, mo all states within our country have reciprocity for this. So let's, you know, say that you fill one out in California and then you go visit somebody in Montana. In Montana, the state-based rules will apply and they will recognize by reciprocity the California version. That said, if you're doing something more than, let's say, visiting Montana, if you're moving to Montana, it probably makes sense to update the form truthfully. And um, that's, that's more so because it's a big life change. And the people that, for instance, you may have written down on your California-based form are likely living in California. And you might have new people in Montana that you want to write down that are just a little bit more geographically close and easier to access. Do, do physicians have the, the advanced directive in our charts that they could recommend to us, that they could send to us? How, how does that conversation get started? Yeah, so important. Um, so I, I think there's a number of different forms that people can use. We at the Institute for Human Caring um, have them freely available on our website. So that's um, instituteforhumancaring.org. Um, and um, there's, a, there's a link on there to go through and guide you through the advanced care planning process. Um, if you're interested and want to prepare for a visit in advance um, of coming in and, and, and bring it in. Um, all of our offices, uh, certainly we have an internal intranet form that they can download and fill out. Um, even most recently, we've actually created a way to generate this within our own electronic health record so that if we're able to go through and have a conversation within our EPIC system, we can actually generate a computer-generated form directly out of our electronic health record with what we kind of talked about in that visit and be able to give it to you to then be able to take and go and get notarized or witnessed. So we're trying to make it really easy for people. Um, the other piece that we've really done, Mary, we've done a lot of work around this is trying to make sure that we we talk about these things, particularly when people are coming in for an annual wellness visit. It's a good time when people are coming in to, to do their basic health maintenance, to, to talk about these things. And to that end, actually, um, most of our patients, about a week before they come in for an annual wellness visit, will get an email from us if we don't have their advanced directive that will email them and say, you know what, this is really important. And it's not a, anything about who you are in terms of illness or sickness. It's simply a normal human healthy part of uh, healthcare maintenance. And we noticed that this is missing in your chart. And here's some information and a link to an advanced directive that you can download directly from that email so that we can begin the process as we're talking through these things in the doctor's office. That's great. I love it. Well, we have quite a few questions that came in through social for you. So I'm going to jump into some of those. Um, Maria on Facebook said, do you see an increase in new advanced directives being created during a medical crisis like a coronavirus pandemic? And if so, why do you think people wait until there's a problem to do it? Uh, uh, the second question I, I wish I understood. Um, 
but yeah, certainly we are seeing an increase in advanced directives created with the coronavirus. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's certainly, um, have been taking care recently of people with coronavirus. It's certainly a very humbling illness. And, um, you know, as we know from both our clinical care, as well as watching, you know, the news and watching journal reports, this is a, a new illness that affects many, many people, um, both people with underlying health conditions and sometimes, unfortunately, people who don't have underlying health conditions. We know that mostly people who are older or people who have underlying medical conditions are seriously affected, but I think it's caused us all to take a moment to reflect um, on, on many parts of our lives. I know certainly it has for myself. Um, you know, I, I took a moment thinking about this and recognizing that that as a you know healthy forty something that this could affect me even. And so thinking about my own self of making sure that my own advance directive was up to date and that I talked to the people around this and said, you know, I think for I would be willing to give some time limited trial of going through treatment for coronavirus at this point in time. You know, our own health is certainly at the forefront of almost every newscast on a daily basis. And so I, I think it's right that people are beginning to think about this and to beginning to recognize the importance of being able to plan for the future and having these discussions. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think now is a really excellent time for readdressing these things, for thinking it through with your, your family and loved ones. Oh, thank you for that. We have a question from Sandy Z and she says, my mother is in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Sandy, I'm very sorry, I've, I've gone through that. Um, is it too late to prepare an advanced medical directive now? That's a great question. That's such a good question. And it feels so important to, to begin that conversation today. Um, you know, I, I um, Sandy, my heart goes out because certainly, um, Alzheimer's is is um, a hard illness to go through, and you know there is these moments early on where people can still talk about and to be able to share a lot about what matters to them, and um, to be able to really t appoint somebody who can make decisions for them when they reach a point where they're not able to make decisions for themselves. And I think now is the the perfect time to do that to think about these advanced directive forms if that hasn't already been done already. And so I, I encourage people to do this as soon as possible, whether honestly they have um, the beginnings of an Alzheimer's disease or whether they're healthy because none of us can see the future. But certainly I think early Alzheimer's doesn't rule out the ability to be able to do this. People may have good and bad days for sure. And some days it may be harder to begin these conversations, but for the most part, I believe that people can engage in these conversations and it's a good and right time to be doing that. So hats off to you for thinking about this. And I know it's challenging stuff, but really important. It is very important. Um, well, Don on Twitter said, is there something I can carry in my wallet that lets emergency personnel know that I have an advanced directive? Yeah, really good question. Um, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could like put a little stamp on everybody's driver's license for that? Organ donor slash have an advanced directive. Yeah, a little QR code that links out directly to where it is. Um, we're not there yet. Um, certainly we on our institute website have the ability to download a pocket card that you can put in your wallet. Um, and it contains, you know, the phone number and um, 
contact information, name of the people that would speak for you and speak on your behalf. So I think that's a, a really good tool. I think, as I mentioned, the other place to think about it is in the digital age is scanning that whole document in and just even, or taking pictures of it with your, your smartphone of every page and saving it as a favorite somewhere in some folder so that you have access to it. Um, there are also spots in the number of the different um, emergency medical apps that different um, smartphone designers have that, that have a place to say whether you do or don't have that. And so I think all of those places are, are great places to, to keep it depending on, you know, how analog or digital your lifestyle is. Yeah. Good advice. I have the, um, the scrolling thing on my phone when it's locked that says in case of emergency call. And then mine in parentheses says I have an advanced directive. I love it. <laughs> that was my solution. That was my solution. Yeah. Um, I'm love- going to be tweeting that out as a response. <laughs> Oh, I will. Most definitely. Um, You know, I love taking these questions because you get kind of such an insight into people's lives. Uh, Johnny says, my dad's the quote unquote independent type. And instead of advanced directive, he made a video declaring his wishes. Will anyone take this seriously? That's pretty specific, but it's a great question. It's a great question. And I love it. Um, You know, I I think the truth is, is that it's always nice to have the fully notarized, legalized form. Um, and, and that is the gold standard. Um, but truth be told, you know, we are moving in the digital age and being able to have a video like this is so important. Um, I think whether or not it was immediately recognized as a legally valid form, it's information that is really helpful to healthcare teams and to the people that would be caring for your dad if this situation were to happen. And so I I think honestly, particularly now in this challenge, these challenging times of COVID, that recording something like that really matters. I mean, the truth is, is in the time of physical distancing, it's not exactly easy to get documents notarized. It's not exactly easy to get two witnesses that aren't your decision makers to witness the form. I mean, there, there's a lot of gymnastics to get all that done in the time of physical distancing. And so things like video testimonials, sharing those with your families, um, certainly really powerful and important. And you know, my bet is is that those types of things would would probably, if it ever came down to it, which we all hope it wouldn't, would hold up in a court or something like that. Well, my next question, I'm, I'm, we had great questions from social. I'm going to come back to mine because it's all about me. Um, when we talk about advanced directives, I think we always think about kind of the nice to make sure that the wishes are understood, that sort of thing. But I think a lot of it too comes down to cost. Families don't know what it's going to cost at end of life and some of the precautions and, and or not precautions, some of the things that they do are very expensive and family members wouldn't want to drain their accounts or they wouldn't want to go through that pain or that sort of thing. So talk to me a little bit about how advanced directives kind of affect the economy of healthcare. Yeah, I think it's a really important consideration. Certainly, honestly, never my first thought, but but it is really important. Uh, you know, my, my lens on life is that it, it really what matters most is what matters to you. Um, but, but to that end, right. Um, the most expensive care that anyone can provide or pay for is care that someone didn't want. And certainly as we all think about these uncertain financial times, um, I think it's really important that we make sure that we advocate for ourselves and don't go through things that, um, that we didn't want and ultimately through insurance or the like, we'll have some financial responsibility for. So 
I, it's not certainly my, my first piece of it, but we know that unfortunately in different places that a lot of healthcare dollars, a lot of personal dollars are spent on care in the final few days, weeks, months of life. And a lot of that is very appropriate and very important because getting people the care that they need is so critical. And yet at the same time, if people say, oh, you know what? I wouldn't want to go through heart surgery because it doesn't improve the quality of my life then it doesn't make sense to me to necessarily invest in that when we could put those dollars towards something else to be able to ensure that patients have the best quality of life for what time that they might have with or without that surgery. It really all of it just comes back to what are your wishes, right? And the chance yeah. to do it. And I think we've all gone through that where we maybe we wouldn't do something. I mean, it's, it's as simple as a, as a dog. I hate to say it, but I, I put one of my dogs through chemo and radiation and so many things. And looking back, I realized she was miserable the last three months. And not only did I spend a lot of money and I was frustrated and she was frustrated. And I started thinking at that precise moment, this isn't what she would have wanted. And that was actually a conversation starter with some of my family members about what would you want? Because they were saying, Mary, you're torturing your dog. And I would say, well, but I don't know. I don't know what's right. And I think sometimes it's it's using those, you were talking about storytelling, it's using those real life examples, but how do we really convey to the family members that this is not about you, this is about your loved one? And so if it's challenging for you to have the conversation or it's hard for you to think about, it isn't about you, how do you really direct them that, that way? Mm. It's, it's really important. Uh, you know, I think a lot about um, keeping the patients, the, the people that we serve at the center of this discussion all the time. And oftentimes when I have these conversations in a hospital, um, I, I use sort of an, an empty chair analogy, um, i.e. if I'm having a conversation and the, the person isn't able to participate in that conversation, I, I say maybe to the kids, you know, if your dad was sitting in this empty chair right here, what do you think he would say? What would he tell us that he would want in these moments? And I often think that the imagination is really helpful in trying to think through these things with people and to try to lend their voice when when they don't have one. So um, I, I found it to be very important and powerful, um, in, at least clinically in the moment for having conversations. Truthfully, I would love for someday for most people to be able to say, yeah, you know what? Um, the great thing is about what dad's sitting there is I know exactly what he would say because we've had a ton of conversations over the last few decades about what matters to him. We're not there yet. And I would love to really get there such that when we have these conversations, people feel more confident and they feel less guilty about making these decisions because that's what happens sometimes as family members feel this sense of guilt and this sense of, Oh, I, I'm just not sure what the right thing to do is. And, and, and that is, um, not always avoidable guilt, but some of that guilt, some of that grief that comes from that is avoidable if we have conversations early enough. Mm, beautiful thoughts. I imagine though that you still run into times where families that are remaining disagree with the decision that was made or one family member feels like they should have been the person to make the decision and not their brother or sister. A, I guess, how common is that? And B, what, what really happens? How do you process through that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I thankfully would say that they're not as 
all that common, um, but it, it does happen. And this is where I think that our medical specialty that I um, am trained in palliative care, which is really uh, a specialty that's designed to care for people with serious illness and specialized medical care that typically attunes to both improving quality of life through good symptom management, you know, making your pain as best as it can be so that it's interfering with your life a lot less. Um, but also we focus a lot on communication and trying to understand and think through these complex decisions that people have. And so I think if we're running into these moments or families are feeling like, you know, there's a lot of disagreement here, that having a palliative care team, which is interdisciplinary in nature, usually it's a, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, to individually talk with people and to have good open conversations about what what mattered and to get people's perspectives, oftentimes with really good conversations that may take a few hours, but we can get to some sort of agreement with people. It's it's rare that um, courts need to get involved and you know, it's unfortunate, but sometimes that does happen. But it's so rare because I think most of the time when we operate from this place of trying to keep the patient or person that we serve at the, the center and try to understand how to get them the best care possible, that usually we're able to align um, with their goals and to be able to deliver on what matters to them during these trying times. It's a challenging challenging time though for families and we understand and recognize that and sometimes emotions come out and sometimes people are angry and you know there's a lot of history in families as we all know um, no no family is perfect and so these things though are um, conversations that are challenging and certainly people that are board certified or trained in palliative care have expertise in working with families and thinking through these complex decisions to be able to help make the situation as best as it can be. So encourage people to engage with palliative care teams if they're feeling stressed about having these conversations when people are seriously ill in particular. It's, it's good to hear that it's not that common. I imagine it's probably more common when you don't have an advanced directive and the families have to make a decision. And I can imagine that's incredibly challenging. Yeah, well said. Well, well said. It, it is much more challenging um, when those conversations have happened because you're, it's harder to understand what mattered to somebody. And that's really how I frame these conversations is how, do you, how did this person live their life? What mattered to them? Tell me a little bit about their story. Tell me about who they are because that helps to be able to ground how we help them to move through these challenging times that they're facing. Tell me a little bit when, when you, because you work a lot with end of life and, and, and that's challenging, but do you use that time to encourage then the family members, the people that are participating in the care of the loved one to also create their own advanced directives? I mean, is that a conversation starter at times? Absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. Particularly in these situations that you're talking about where sometimes people disagree, right, is um, trying to make sure that that you encourage families to be able to have these conversations for their own lives, for their own selves, because often people haven't had these conversations. Um, I've definitely had, uh, I just even recently, I had somebody who came back. Um, later and said, you know, that was a really hard conversation. And out of that, I generated my own advanced directive. And so did every member of my family, because we didn't want this to happen again. It was too hard to go through once. And the last thing we want is for our family to have to go through that challenge again. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I'm gonna ask you maybe a harder question, but you guys have been fairly innovative in the way you've done this and, and integrated into the medical records, but you talked about kind of, there's really no too young to have one. 18, you said, is, is a good time to start having these conversations. What are you guys doing to bring awareness and reach out to that younger demographic? Because certainly, I think at 18, I was still in the um, untouchable, nothing will ever harm me phase, right? So why would I want to talk about death? But what are you doing in order to reach that audience? Yeah, uh, yes, I think everyone at 18 feels untouchable, um, or at least most people <laughs> do. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I think one of the things that we innovatively have done, truthfully, is to try to reach out, honestly, um, to high schools and colleges and to get on campuses to be able to have these conversations. Um, you know, we've been working throughout LA and trying to figure out how we integrate into the health curriculum um, of the senior year of high school to recognize that if we really are going to make this a normal part of conversation and, and make sure that it is a part of healthy American behavior, that we have these conversations at the right time and take away the stigma that's associated with it and really try to invest in making sure that people know this is about who speaks for you. You know, in many of our states where we serve um, patients and families, on your 18th birthday, it's unclear who legally speaks for you. And maybe you want it to be your parents, maybe you want it to be somebody else, but it's your right to choose and to be able to have those conversations with people when they're young and say, you know what, we get it. You, we hope nothing bad ever happens to you, but your individuality is really important to us and making sure that we know what matters to you at 18 matters to us. And so we're working on college campuses in high schools to be able to reframe that conversation and not make it something that happens when you're in your 70s and 80s and 90s, but that it's a normal part of, of campus life. And we've done a number of events. Um, we did one last year on the UCLA campus. Uh, it, was, it was really wonderful and inspiring, honestly, to be able to talk with young folks about what mattered to them, what they hope to achieve in their life, and, and who could speak for them, who with uncertain voices. And truthfully, most 18, 19, 20-year-olds can tell you really clearly, these are the people that I would want to, but they can also really tell, oh, these are the people I would not want to. And so engaging <laughs> that, yeah, right? Like, that's really powerful. The 18-year-old is like, oh, yeah, not those people. And even that's really helpful information for us to know. So, Well, you know, you're talking about kind of educating the masses and starting with the younger. I think what's interesting is, you know, I had a, an, an, I don't want to call older, but an older doctor for a while who never mentioned it to me. But in the last few years, every doctor I've met with has said, do you have an advanced directive? Have you considered this? How are we educating physicians and clinical people to have these conversations? So important. You know, the truth is, Mary, is that we can't do any one of these things alone. And that's what I think, um, truthfully, is one of the re key reasons that I work for Providence and for the Institute for Human Caring is that we think about system change as you can't just do one thing anymore. You know, we used to think, oh, well, if we just um, do talks in the community or we just educate doctors or we just put things on a website that suddenly the system will change. And ultimately we need many things at once to be able to reinforce these changes. And so 
you know, we are working certainly across Providence um, to be able to increase people's confidence in having these conversations. Because the truth is, it's hard for doctors to have these conversations. One of the key reasons, things that we're asking them to do actually is to have the conversation with their own loved ones, uh, right? To be able to go through this experience themselves and to be able to think about their own advanced directive and who would speak for them because it helps to be able to understand what you're asking other people to do if you have a sense of how challenging this conversation can be, right? It changes the dynamic. It changes the conversation if they can say, you know what, I've had this conversation and I know it's hard, but I also know it's really important. And so we're giving them sort of tools to be able to make their lives easier, whether it's generating these forms directly from Epic from a few clicks to being able to have really high quality um, educational sessions about how best to think about these things and how best to break down the language that has been confusing for years of all of these terms of living will and the like. Um, so it's taken a really coordinated effort, but it does feel like we are beginning to change the direction on this. Um, you know, I, I can attest that I went both within the last year to my primary care doctor and to an ophthalmology visit. And both times they asked me if I had an advanced directive or needed to update the one that I had in our system. And I just was like beamingly smiling because I felt like, ah, oh, like we're really, we're really beginning to move the Indication. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Well, um, Matt, we're in our last minute. So I'm going to open this up to you. Is there anything you'd want our listeners to take away from this conversation today? Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I would ask is, um, for your listeners is to, to think about this truly deeply, to take a moment to reflect what matters most to you in your life. What are you worried about? And who would you want to speak for you in case you were unable to communicate those things to everybody that was caring for you? And, and to, to take that and use that and have a conversation with one person, even if you don't fully do the advanced directive, which I would love but go and have a conversation with that person that you think that you would want to speak for you and talk about what this means. Talk about what you heard today and, and think about this with them. I think that, that I can't change this alone. The Institute for Human Caring can't change this alone, but everybody listening could make a real difference for our culture and our society if we begin to address this together. So thanks Mary for the opportunity to, to be on this because um, I honestly find that we in healthcare can only do so much. It's it's the people that we work with that really can can change this future for all of us. Ugh. I love the passion you have for what you do. So thank you, Dr. Gonzalez, for joining us today um, and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit instituteforhumancaring.org. And to access the Conversation Starter Kit, visit theconversationproject.org and look for starter kits. Thank you, everyone, for listening.